A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduch. And what we're doing this time round is the A-Team. Ten years ago, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. Which means, actually, what I'm going to focus on is just one line from that intro, where it says, They survive as soldiers of fortune. Now, soldiers of fortune is another name for mercenaries. And mercenaries are a great topic of conversation because they pop up in pop culture all the time. 18 being a noticeable example and a rare example where the mercenaries, in essence, are the good guys, although we'll talk about how good they are as mercenaries in a minute, but it absolutely leads on to the conversation of what are mercenaries exactly? How long have they been around as a weapon? And obviously, if you've been paying any attention to the news, how they exist today, right now, at the time of recording, still sadly doing terrible things. So... This is a big topic which will lurch wildly between sheer fun and utter horror and the realities of modern warfare. So sorry about that, but it's going to be quite the roller coaster ride. So let's go back to the A team. Now, if you were to try and find a symbol of the 1980s. Obviously, the 80s have become so hot with the likes of things like Stranger Things, for example, or even something like The Wedding Singer. There are loads of things that refer back to the 1980s, and if you want something that's like, what's a focal point of pop culture? I've heard lots of people saying, oh, The Lost Boys, that's the most 80s movie there can be. And look, it's pretty 80s, sir. Keith Sutherland makes a mullet look good in that one. Or if we're going to keep with hair, we could do Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse, which was the inspiration of Ben Stiller's haircut in Dodgeball. So there was some pretty wacky hair. There was some pretty neon lights. There were some very, very silly programs. And the A-Team is one of them. And I think in terms of what is the most 80s show or movie or whatever, I think the A-Team's a pretty good place to go. You have to understand what a big deal it was then. You had George Papad, who in the 1960s 
had like major hits like Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Blue Max, and also something like Operation Crossbow as well, where he was kind of suave and sophisticated and a bit of an action man as well. He was, if you like, the Harrison Ford. What Harrison Ford was in the 1980s, George Papard was in the 1960s. He was that classic thing where every woman wanted to be with him and every man wanted to be him. He was sort of tough, but he was also cool and he was romantic and he was hard on the outside but vulnerable on the inside. But by the 1970s, he'd kind of lost his way. He was doing that classic thing of, like, still earning money, doing these sort of cheap churn out type movies, could be westerns, could be war movies, uh, coming from Italy. And that sort of personified in something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and also Brad Pitt in it as well. You know, that sort of shows you how some of these people who are a big deal in the 50s and 60s in America kind of had been pushed out of the Hollywood system and still wanted to act and work, and so they moved somewhere else. So anyway, that was George Papard, and he made his big comeback in this TV show. And I remember my mother had grown up seeing him in things like Breakfast at Tiffany's and loved him. And there was this sort of profound sense of disappointment where he's now got a paunch and he's now doing this thing that's clearly beneath him. And do you know what? George agreed with my mother. He did not want to do the A-Team, but he recognised it as a way to become relevant again. And he apparently spent a lot of his time during filming basically having a go at Mr. T. And Mr. T would happily admit he is not a great actor, but he was so hot. Again, if you want an example of, like, what was the 80s like, Mr. T will never be bothering the Royal Shakespeare Company. But because of things like Rocky Three and the A-Team, he was everywhere. And his message of positivity and sort of, like, pro-children and sort of like physical exercise, but also stay in school kids and all that kind of stuff. That was absolutely the epitome of the 1980s. And so there was a story that George Papard had an opportunity to be on the front of Time magazine, which again, in the 80s, you were hot, but they didn't want Papard on his own. They wanted him with Mr. T. And indeed, he begrudgingly agreed with that. And that particular edition of Time magazine sold like hotcakes because it had Hannibal Smith and B.A. Baracus on the front cover. So the kids wanted to get that picture and pin it up on their wall. And the parents wanted to read Time magazine. And, and so everybody won in that situation, except George Papard, who just further solidified his I'm no longer the kind of guy that can open a big budget movie. Ah, oh, well, at least you're still earning. And hey, everybody wants your autograph as well. The 18... Like so many things, it feels like it went on for the whole decade. There are basically only four series. The fourth series was actually quite different to the others. And the basic setup. My sister, I, I mentioned this in the Vietnam episode because 18 was another way into the story about Vietnam. And again, a lot of the TV shows in the 1980s was referring back to the Vietnam War. Because if you wanted to explain how somebody was good with a gun or tough or whatever... You could just instantly say, ah, oh, they served in Vietnam. And to Americans, it's like, okay, so that person saw action. But to the British, Vietnam took a while to sort of, like, catch on here. We didn't fight in Vietnam. And if you're an average British kid, it wasn't something that you were taught in school or anything. And it wasn't until a little bit later into the 1980s that we get movies like Platoon and Hamburger Hill and Full Metal Jacket. And so it took a while for us to understand kind of what Vietnam was, 
really. And in my sister, who was younger than me, she just had no idea why. And it is fair. If you know nothing about the Vietnam War, the opening of this TV show shows actual footage from Vietnam of soldiers coming down in a Huey helicopter in a jungle. And the rest of the TV show never has a Huey helicopter. They're never in a jungle. They're usually in middle America. Nobody's wearing military uniforms. It's like, what? what? What's that got to do with this show? But if you like, it was a shorthand to say these guys are highly skilled and now they're going to help local people. And indeed, the basic episode, each basic episode, also was reverential to something else. The basic story was the same as the Seven Samurai, only there were four of them in the A-Team. And many people have pointed out that you've got the Colonel, Hannibal Smith. Colonels generally were not frontline soldiers. They, by the time you get to the level of Colonel, they would be in the headquarters, sort of like sending the platoons around the area, fighting the actual frontline engagements. But also, you had Howling Mad Murdoch, who's a pilot, Pilots didn't fight with the infantry. The very nature of a pilot is you're in the Air Force. So they were all meant to be a crack commando unit. No commando unit would have had those sorts of people all in the same unit. That That's just not militarily viable. Again, if you're wondering, well, how did commando units get into enemy-occupied area? Yes, the Air Force would fly them in, might chopper them in in Vietnam, or they might fly you in a new parachute in in World War II, but you used the Air Force and then the commando unit, which commandos generally are linked specifically to the Army as opposed to Marines with the Navy, that's what would be going on there, and therefore the A-Team couldn't actually exist in terms of how U.S. military organization is set up during the time of Vietnam, or indeed during any time in its entire history. So the unit doesn't exist, and then they group themselves, have a specialized set of skills. Fair enough, okay, fine. We've got particularly with Hannibal Smith, The Art of Disguise, some of that has not aged well, particularly when he is playing like an Asian man and then pulls off the latex, and it's just sort of like the worst Asian stereotypes. Sorry about that. It was a different time in the 80s, but I believe on one occasion, and I'm pretty sure... A, I'm pretty sure this happened, and I'm also pretty sure you're not going to find it anywhere, because any sort of blackface has been taken off TV series and things like that. Even the episode of Community, when Chang dresses up as a dark elf and is absolute jet black, and he's clearly being a dark elf, not trying to be an African-American, just, oh, it's like, we're so insensitive, we're now worried about offending dark elves, who don't exist, but anyway, absolutely, he is trying to be African-American, in the A-Team, and yes, that episode's going to be one of these ones that's subtly shelled and never mentioned again. But so, each episode, like the Seven Samurai, is you have a group of warriors protecting the locals. In Seven Samurai, it was actually not Seven Samurai because none of them had a leader, so they were technically Ronin, which meant masterless samurai. Another word for Ronin would be mercenaries. There we go. So that's the first selection of sort of showing you how mercenaries were certainly not a Western thing and certainly not a modern thing. We're talking about feudal Japan here. So there we go. That's the first reference to historical mercenaries there. But in this case, you've got four of them turning up at a place and there's always a gang, a group who are doing terrible things, terrorizing the local population and either the police are incapable or in on it 
and basically nobody can do anything until the 18 turn up. But if they were genuine mercenaries, like I said, let's talk about how effective they are as mercenaries. Mercenaries fight for money. That's the difference between them and, well, you could turn around and say, well, hang on, if you join the armed forces of a nation, you get paid a wage. Yes, you do, but that is different to a mercenary. The mercenaries will literally fight for different countries, technically, and they'll basically go to the highest bidder, and they will do a contract, and they will be paid so much more than your average soldier. So this is why, particularly in the modern world, if you'd been in a special forces unit, something, let's say, like the Rangers or Delta Force or the SAS, you would have earned a pittance and been put in extremely dangerous situations and then once you finish with that special forces, well, what what are you actually qualified to do in civilian life? You know, you're probably going to end up being a geography teacher and that's not going to pay very much. Or you could use, in inverted commas, your particular set of skills and suddenly be paid the equivalent of like three or four years of wages over just a six month period in some kind of combat situation or, or at least dangerous scenario. So why would you not want to do that for a few years after leaving the army, navy, marines, etc.? So anyway, in this situation, if basically the 18 turned up and said, how much money you got? And that's not enough money for us to do the thing. They're not the good guys. So what do they invariably do? They turn up, they solve the problem, they beat the bad guys... And then when people offer to give them what little money they have, in the traditional hero white hat type scenario, they go, oh no, you keep that money. You go to college, Billy. We'll just head off into the sunset. And just the sort of like the noble warriors. So how they actually finance their operation. I mean, literally just pay for the gas for their van. Unknown in terms of how they operate. They are terrible mercenaries, but they're brilliant for children. Similarly, I once said to my mother, the difference between a Schwarzenegger movie like Commando and the A-Team is red dots. Now, that's strictly not true, because in the something like Commando, there's some pretty foul language, and there is no foul language in something like the A-Team. But they are constantly firing guns. Now, if those men suddenly you see sort of like the red squibs that you would get in a movie or something like that. So to show they've been hit by bullet fire and basically there's a little red splodge there on now on their jacket as they fall over. I mean, that's probably not going to scar you as a child, particularly something, and I'm, I'm deliberately choosing Commando because it is so cartoonish. There is not a child out there that wouldn't recognize that it's got more in common with a Tom and Jerry cartoon than it would with Platoon, for example. It's not trying to show you the horrors of war. It's trying to show you, hey, look, the good guy is, is slaying the bad guys. Again, this is as, as similar as, like, the cowboy movies of the 1950s. They're clearly the goody-good people are good, and the baddie-bad people are really bad. And that's it. But you just, you could not have that on a Saturday evening. To show those red dots would to show actual violence, would to show actual injury, would make these things super serious. So... What did the A-Team constantly do, or indeed the bad guys? They would spray bullets everywhere and always miss. It was always basically pinning fire or keep their heads down. And then what would they do? There would always be this thing where later on in the 80s, this was 
this was turned into a whole show, a show called MacGyver, and that term MacGyver is now just common in America. Few people in Britain use it as well, knowing what it is. MacGyver was not as big a hit in the UK as it was in the US. And so MacGyver would literally pull together a few things, like give me that chemical, and you know, household items, and suddenly create a bomb, or a gun, or a jet ski, or whatever. But actually this started with the A-Team, where they would sort of like bolt together armor over a truck and then get a sort of air pressure cannon and fire cabbages that genuinely happened in one one of the episodes so if they're gonna take down the enemy it can't be through violence mortar fire i don't know napalm all these things have been used by mercenaries in in the past but they're certainly not going to be showing that in children's tv and so it got a lot of trouble it got a lot of controversy because it probably was the most violent thing on tv aimed at children and yet if you saw anything else that actually showed real violence you could see how careful they were to take it up to the edge but never go over it and certainly again you know the characters have to be super noble if they're going to be sort of doing semi-violent things. And we all loved it as children, as B.A. Brackus, Mr. T, would sort of grab somebody and throw them through a window. Now, technically, if that happened in the real world, as you went through sheet glass, you'd be cut to ribbons and there'd be blood everywhere. But of course, this is sugar glass. These are stunt people. And so, yeah, it's all fine. And everybody would get up, dust themselves down and like usually run away from the A-team rather than be gunned down by the A-team. Just too strong for the eight-year-olds out there. Although I'm going to say the eight-year-olds would have absolutely loved that. I remember what I was like and it was it was annoying that basically the A-team never hit their target ever. So that's what's going on in the A-team because each episode was basically they would go to an area and fix the problem. Occasionally they'd be chased by the military police who are trying to get them back for this crime that they didn't commit. But in the fourth series, they basically start becoming black ops for the US government. And they even change the theme tune, which was really bad. If you like, 10 out of 10 for at least trying to go in a different direction and recognizing after three series, we've done it all. But it was too big a jump, and particularly there was no reason why they couldn't have kept the theme tune, which is one of the greatest theme tunes of all time for TV. So, if you like, that was the beginning of the end, and by then, the kids are kind of, there's this term, aging out. So with all these great cartoons of the 1980s as well, they tended to run for like three series, because if you were eight at the beginning, you were now 11 at the end of it, and you're probably moving on to new toys, new things, new music, etc., and it's like, oh, that's kid stuff as we tried to kid ourselves that we were all grown up aged 11 or 12. So, yeah, it, it, had, it had reached its natural peak. And what was interesting is when they tried to reinvent it in the early 2000s, with Liam Neeson now playing Hannibal Smith, etc. So, the, you know, they, they absolutely put the money in. They got some good actors to play the, the A-team, just didn't have the same magic. And the film, I think, basically broke even at the box office it's certain the thing was for such a huge name in the 80s it was not a huge big sort of like epic blockbuster biggest grossing movie of all time in the 2000s which is quite telling and right as of now there are rumors about reboots and things like that but it could just be it was of its time and unless you're going to get somebody with the sheer charisma of mr t that's a really hard sell so all of them just all of the main characters 
just they were perfectly cast and they performed so well and there was this magic with all of them and yeah that magic i guess we have to admit has gone so let us go to the world of history now with this or at least the sort of segue between the two as i perhaps mention a few other things as well that that sort of show mercenaries and, and just as always hey if you just came here for the a-team stuff hi welcome enjoy the party but please click subscribe if you could give us a review on whatever podcast format that you've got really appreciate that help spread the word i'm on at gem on twitter you'll find out what the latest episode is i'm always sort of plugging them both on tuesdays and thursdays when the new episodes come out yes we do two a time now each week so you could you can give me your thoughts on what i've already done you can give me suggestions on future ideas all useful but please if you could retweet my stuff on twitter that would be really useful so that we can just spread the word so there we go now what i'm going to say is mercenaries do tend to pop up the other example of a mercenary slash bounty hunter is you get them in star wars boba fett is the classic bounty hunter in empire strikes back you've got darth vader talking to a bunch of bounty hunters now i'm planning to do an episode specifically on bounty hunters but there are times when these people are actually being used as assassins or just simply hired muscle heavies to do some fighting so in other words they're mercenaries so they might be mandalorians or they might be gamorian guards etc so there are all kinds of peoples out there in star wars where if you're being paid in essence to do something violent to fight that's what a mercenary is so it it, it crops up in a surprising amount of children's or, or children orientated. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Properties, and yet they are sort of one of the darkest parts of history. And that's sort of kind of confusing or fascinating. It's a bit like pirates. Pirates obviously aren't mercenaries, but there's a specific type of pirate. The golden age of piracy in the Atlantic and Caribbean is considered completely child-friendly. These were sort of violent men who robbed, stole, and murdered. Yet a four-year-old, a parent would think of nothing of dressing a four-year-old like a pirate. But if you ask them, do you want to dress them up like a 30s gangster... They would go, no, that, why would I do that? Well, I mean, both of them are organized crime, but for some reason, so, at some point, we considered pirates child-friendly, and weirdly, we now consider mercenaries as child-friendly, or at least, again, a certain type of mercenary. Fine if they're Mandalorian, okay if they're Mr. T, not so much if you were going to be doing the Wagner Group, or indeed a Somali pirate. Those sorts of things, because they're modern, suddenly we realize, oh yeah, they're, they're the bad guys. So anyway, how far back do mercenaries go? And actually, the first reference to foreign fighters being paid to be part of an army goes all the way back to Ramesses II, at about 1100 BC. So in other words, mercenaries have been around for over 3,000 years. That's how integral they are to society. Now, I made passing reference to Ronin, so that's Japan. Now, the Ronin and the feudal era is basically from about the 1500s to 1800s, so that's actually quite modern, if you like. But if I... Fast forward some 600 years from Ramesses II in ancient Egypt, so we're obviously in North Africa there, we go to the Persian Empire, and we know that various Persian emperors hired mercenaries as part of their massive forces to crash into Greece. You know, the whole Battle of Thermopylae and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, this sort of warring between Greeks and Persians, sometimes the Greeks themselves would actually be hired. Some of these hoplites, these heavily armoured hoplites, were literally hired by some Persians to fight other Persians in sort of civil wars. So this goes on for centuries, and we're getting people from all over Asia and Eastern Europe to be mercenaries two and a half thousand years ago. We also know that in the era of the warring nations in China, so we're talking about 200 BC, give or take, so 2,200 years ago, China was using mercenaries basically across the globe, depending on when there were periods of extreme violence, there were mercenaries being used. And what I wanted to do now is, okay, so I started at 1100 BC. Let's fast forward some 2100 years to the 11th century in Europe, where I've already mentioned 
Japanese feudal society, but the, the most common feudal society that Westerners know about is the typical Middle Ages thing. And that's a good example to show you why you might use mercenaries. Because, to sh explain the feudal system, basically, the king owns all the land. I know the church owns some of it, but let's just push that to one side. That's a whole other story. So basically, the king owns all the land. So if you are, argument's sake, the Duke of Sussex, then you don't actually own Sussex, a part of Britain or England, if you are not British, just for the record. So if I own Sussex, I don't actually own it. I am renting it from the king. And what does the king want from me for having that land? In the feudal, the pure feudal system of the 11th century, I had to supply a certain number of knights, certain number of fighters. And so how did I pay those fighters on my land? I would divvy up parts of my land for them to run. The thing about a knight is they were also a landowner, and they would spend more time administering the local lands of a knight, and obviously knights are lower down the aristocratic pecking order than a duke or an earl or a baron. So the the knights were lesser aristocracy, and to have that land, they had to basically strap on their armor during the campaigning season, usually for 60 days, which is why there was this sort of specific campaigning season, usually in summer, so that when the king decided that they were going to fight X, whoever X actually was, then basically it was all agreed. So, you know, basically on the 1st of May, I need everybody to rally in Dover because then we're going to get onto ships. We're going to go over to France and we're going to fight the French. OK, I'm paraphrasing here because, of course, the kings of England in the late 1100s were also French. They were the Dukes of Normandy. But you get the idea. You get the point. So everybody knew when they had to muster. And basically the clock started. 60 days is now what I owed to do with you. Now, obviously, if it ran over by a couple of days on the way back you would give the king that flexibility. But if he wanted you to stay longer, he's probably going to actually have to give some kind of incentive to these people. Maybe some of the lands I'm conquering, you guys get to administer, so you become richer as well. Therefore, you're probably going to fight harder. But you can see that a knight was not spending all their time in the saddle, and they were not spending all their time learning how to fight. So if you wanted to bolster your forces, you had a finite amount of forces being raised through feudal processes. How do I get more? Well, you're going to have to pay some mercenaries to bulk things out. And indeed, the most famous battle in English history, 1066, we talk about how William the Conqueror turned up with Normans. At that point, he was William, Duke of Normandy. And he did turn up with a load of Normans. But it's also part of the records that some of his army were paid for mercenaries. So that's an example 1066, but let's continue with the Normans in a very different part of the world, just five years later, the Battle of Manziket. Now, where on earth is that and what's that? The Battle of Manziket is an incredibly important medieval battle that's pretty obscure today. And basically, it was in northeastern Anatolia, modern-day Republic of Turkey, and this was when literally the Turkish hordes were pushing into the Byzantine Empire. Now, by the 11th century, the Byzantine Empire simply didn't have enough soldiers. So what did they do? With some of their trading revenues, they would hire mercenaries. And on this particular occasion, they basically hired their own Turkish mercenaries, these horse archers, 
And they hired some Normans who were hard fighting and had proven themselves in battle many times. Indeed, we have no idea if this actually happened because we have no records about it. It's absolutely feasible that some of the Anglo-Saxon warriors that lost the Battle of Hastings, we do know that Anglo-Saxons and indeed Northern Europeans became bodyguards, these housecarls as they were known, in the Byzantine court. They were the bodyguard to the emperor. It's feasible and indeed likely that there could have been Anglo-Saxon warriors who fought in the Battle of Hastings and Norman warriors who had fought in the Battle of Hastings, now for the first time on the same side. But what happened at the Battle of Manzikert is when they woke up the next morning ready for battle, all of the Turkish mercenaries that had been on the Byzantine side realised that the other side was probably going to win, and so they just literally went over to the other side. So I've now lost a chunk of my army. Let's say 15% of my men are now over on the other side. And then as they moved into battle, the Norman mercenaries could see that this was a losing battle, and this is the problem with mercenaries. They are not fighting for king and country, they're fighting for money, and I get paid either way. And so I am not going to fight as hard as I possibly could, because that could le if I'm fighting a doomed cause, I die, and then I can't earn any more in the future. I mean, I'm also going to be dead, but it's not going to help the balance of the bank books, if you see what I mean. So that's an example where if all the mercenaries had done what they were meant to do, what they were paid to do, the Byzantines could probably have stopped the the Turks, but instead it was the duplicitous nature of the mercenaries that sealed the deal, and that what starts the sort of the push of the Turkic peoples into the Middle East proper. This is something that leads to the triggering of the First Crusade. It's an incredibly important battle. It's a pivotal battle. There would not be a Republic of Turkey making reference to Turks and indeed things like the Ottoman Empire, although that came a couple of centuries later. But the point is, all of that can, you get a dotted line back to the Battle of Manzikert where you get these Asiatic peoples, the Turks. They're not Middle Eastern. They are distinct from Arabs that these people could have been stopped from carrying out their invasion and pushing into. They were even pagan at that time, so they weren't even Muslim. So, yeah, that is a key moment that was actually swayed by the behaviour of mercenaries. And indeed, if we sort of go through history, because of this feudal process, because a standing army, regularly trained, always ready to go, basically, was something that really wasn't happening until we get into the 1600s, in Europe at least. You get something like the Mongol Empire. I feel obliged to say the Mongol Empire was an example of a meritocratic army that did actually have a standing army, and people did regularly train even when they weren't in the army to be part of the army, which was one of the reasons why the Mongols were so impressive. They did so much with so little, basically. But they're the exception. You do even get, with something like the Roman legions, again, they were a standing army, but again, you've got legions spread all over the empire, and so mercenaries were used, because at the height of the Roman Empire, there was cash to spare. Absolutely, I might need to buy some, some mercenaries to help me in this particular area to bolster the legions that just need a little bit more oomph, for want of a better phrase. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about Italy, or China, or the Americas, etc., mercenaries were everywhere. 
And indeed, let's fast forward, because I said, we are, once we get to the sort of the late 1600s, into the 1500s, I mean, d- d- just a, a brief aside, I went down a rabbit hole looking at this about a group called the Galloglass. The Galloglass is a great name, and they were specifically Scottish and Irish mercenaries from the Middle Ages, from about 1250 to the 1590s, and they would fight basically sometimes for Irishmen, or sometimes they'd fight for the Scots, and they were notoriously erratic. They would happily fight until the going got tough, and then they would run away. Italy was plagued with constant battles during the Middle Ages, and they basically, because you got something like Venice or Florence, that's not enough to generate a huge army, because you're going to have to strip out most of the men from your actual city. So what did they do? There were these bands of mercenaries called Condottore in, in Italy, and they basically had a terrible reputation because, again, you could hire them. They'd been fighting for years. But if they're going to face another bunch of mercenaries, neither side has a vested interest for a definitive victory. There'll be some rude pushing and shoving. Maybe if it looked like one side was going to completely collapse, you might push a little harder. But basically, these mercenary teams would... It's almost against their best interest to win the battle. They want the war to keep grinding on. That's kind of why you got 500 years of fighting in Italy, because the mercenaries never really did anything. Some of these mercenaries weren't even Italian. A a famous example was John Hawkwood. Clearly that's an English name. And he led a band of condottore, a bunch of mercenaries in Italy, during the Hundred Years' War. It seems that these guys had been mercenaries in the English army, They'd fought in the English army, but then during lulls in the Hundred Years' War, it's like, well, we still want to fight, but there's no fighting going on in France. Let's go south, and we can earn a living in Italy. Interestingly, John Hawkwood, Sir John Hawkwood is actually his, his name. The Italians couldn't say Hawkwood, so they called him Acuto, which to Italians it sounds similar to Hawkwood. To English it certainly doesn't, but anyway, but Acuto also means arrow. So it was a good name for a leader of a mercenary band. And he he spent decades, successful decades. He was well regarded in his times. He has a tomb in Italy with beautiful Renaissance painting around it. He was one of the winners of these mercenary bands, if you like. But again, you'd never get a definitive victory because that was not in the best interest of these mercenaries. But as I said, fast forwarding. Now, we now get into sort of like the 1600s, a classic example in Britain is you get the new model army from the Civil War. And so you now have Britain's first, or specifically England's first, standing army, professional soldiers. They're paid to be soldiers and not knights anymore. But even when we get into something like the American War of Independence, there was this really interesting effect where the British just needed as many troops as they could in the colonies, and so they hired a bunch of German mercenaries. Basically, they were nicknamed the Hessians, and for the local American colonists, they were seen as far more violent, far more unruly than the actual English forces, the Redcoats, if you like. So, weirdly, the local... Americans actually hated these German Hessians mercenaries more than the actual English representatives of the crown, which is weird. And indeed, if you've ever heard of the the story of the Headless Horseman, that sort of like famous myth from America, the Headless Horseman himself was specifically a Hessian rather than an Englishman. So 
that's into the 1700s. And really, you know, you go into the Napoleonic era, there's still mercenaries on the battlefield. It's really for only about 50 years that you don't get mercenaries on the battlefield. World War I and World War II were so big where the whole country, you know, be it Germany or Britain or America, etc., because you were mobilizing your entire population, there was just no need for mercenaries. They would be a drop in the bucket compared to the entire Red Army. And indeed, after World War I, there was the, um, the Russian Civil War, and the losers, some of those losers, the whites, actually went to China to continue being mercenaries. This is such a big topic. I could do a whole series on various different mercenary wars around the world. But when we say, oh, mercenaries are a thing of the past in the 20th century, it's only two wars we can really say that, World War I and World War II. Because in the intervening years, there were loads of mercenaries in China again, and indeed in other parts of the world. And after World War II, we get things like the war in Vietnam, where all sides, be it the Americans, South Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, hired mercenaries for various different reasons and used them in different ways. But there are absolutely mercenaries running around in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia in the second half of the 20th century, be they for the French or, like I say, the Americans or whoever. They were everywhere. And then we get into all these nasty little Cold War conflicts in somewhere like Ecuador, etc. These black op operations where we could deny them. And again, these could be American. These could be Soviet. They could be any kind of side. No one side had a moral high ground here when it came to mercenaries in the second half of the 20th century. And then, nowadays, nobody uses the term mercenary. And by the way, merc is from the same area as money and merchant and mercurial. All of these have the same basic Latin root. So it's all to do with money. And mercurial nature means changeable nature, because that's what the mercenaries did. I paid you to do a job, but because you think it's hard, you're going to run off the battlefield. And if you like, you'll never get your comeuppance, but because I lost the battle, so I've had my head cut off, so I can never ask for a refund. So this is why mercenaries have such a bad reputation. They'll do anything to win if they're cornered, but if they're not cornered, they'll win if things are winning and they'll run away if things are losing. So you probably don't want to rely on mercenaries to fight your war. But in Colombia, because there was so there was this, there's the FARC, basically this is a paramilitary organization funded by drugs in Colombia, still exists to this day, they fought against the government. So actually landowners in Colombia were allowed to raise their own private armies to protect their territory. So you've got the army of Colombia, but you've got, at the time of recording, more than 200 different small mercenary organizations in Colombia as well to protect local interests. Some of those are on the side of the army. Some of those are on the side of the narco-terrorists. So that's a whole thing as well. But then, of course, this leads to Wagner Group. And interestingly, technically in Russia, mercenary groups, these private military corporations, are technically illegal. And for the record, I do feel obliged to say Blackwater was a notorious one during the Gulf War and during the Iraq War as well. So these are American operatives using allied forces. I mean, they were American companies, but they might have been using ex-British SAS or ex-French Foreign Legion, etc. Technically, the Foreign Legion in France is also a mercenary organization. It's not part of the French army. So it, you know, this stuff is everywhere. But the Wagner Group 
even though the Russian military technically they are not linked. The reality is we all know that Prigozhin is known as Putin's chef and he absolutely is tied in with the Kremlin. But the thing it gives any modern organization, be it the Kremlin or Number 10 Downing Street or the White House, it gives them plausible deniability. That is not the Russian army in Syria right now. That's the Wagner group. They're different. I'm not in charge of them. They've been paid to do their thing. And again, mercenaries in the 21st century, it is well documented, sadly, of carrying out all kinds of war crimes. Admittedly, more blood is on the hands of the Wagner Group than Blackwater, but even Blackwater, there's a whole book written about it showing you how some of these guys would shoot first and ask questions later, killing civilians, and then when that came to, to pass, they were just quickly taken out of Iraq. And it's like, who was that guy? Who were they representing? Because there isn't enough evidence. They've literally got away with murder in Iraq. But, as bad as that is, that is small time compared to what the Wagner Group has been doing in Syria, has been doing in Africa, and is doing right now in Ukraine. And in Ukraine, they're not even looking after their own men. They're just clearing out the prisons. And there are some instances of them being sent to the front line with nothing more than a sharpened spade and being told to run at the enemy, the Ukrainians. And there's a bunch of Wagner Group behind them, experienced guys with guns, to say, if you retreat, I'm going to shoot you which is just all kinds of crazy and wrong, and sadly, another sign of the bloodshed associated with mercenaries. Sadly, that's where I'm going to leave it, and as always, another podcast coming soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.